You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. Got my good friend Carmi Levy with me today. This is our year in review for the tech space. We are Canada's number one tech radio program. And uh, today on the program, Carmi and I are going to talk about some of the biggest stories that have happened over the past year. So we'll be talking uh, about uh, Apple and its, uh, uh, I guess, announcement of their Vision Pro headset, which is a, a mixed reality headset. We'll see where that is all uh, headed. Uh, we'll also be talking about the Online News Act uh, and uh, what that meant uh, for Canada as well. And, uh, of course, the Online Streaming Act, too. Government's been busy here in uh, Canada. Tech layoffs have accelerated. But I think we're going to start, uh, Carmi, with AI. That has got to be the number one tech story this year. And uh, I think we'll start with ChatGPT. They um, came out of nowhere, I think, uh, you know, to most people. And they have just been making the headlines nonstop, uh, not only for the technology and what it can do and all the implications uh, for jobs and education, but even the drama behind the scenes as well, where um, the CEO was temporarily fired from the company and then brought back. But let's uh, start off with some of the numbers, uh, Carmi. How fast did ChatGPT really hit the mark? Uh, it's one of the fastest growing platforms in history, even faster than the previous fastest, which were Facebook and Instagram and others. Uh, it took it barely two months to get to 100 million uh, active users, uh, at which is is uh, you know by far orders of magnitude better than anything we'd seen before. Uh, it's now approaching 200 million. Uh, their engagement is off the charts. Uh, everybody uses it. Um, it's safe to say that 2023 will go down in history as the year of AI, even though ChatGPT was introduced in 2022, at the end of 2022, November 30th. Uh, in fact, just celebrated its uh, first birthday. But it was really in 2023 where the implications of it really hit home, where most of us really started to roll up our sleeves and use it. And it dawned on us just how fundamental a change this was. It almost felt like those first few months with Google when we first started using it, we realized, hey, this isn't just another search engine. This is a, a significant revolutionary change in technology. And I think the same thing can be said for ChatGPT. Suddenly everyone was talking about it. And more importantly, all of the big tech companies were changing directions, recognizing that this was the next big thing and they needed to pivot. So Microsoft, which had been working with OpenAI all along, um, they went pedal to the metal on it. They upped their investment in the company to a reported $13 billion. They started integrating ChatGPT in everything they make. So Windows now has Copilot, Office, Bing, Edge, uh, Azure services, you name it. There is almost no Microsoft product that has not been touched in some way by some open AI technology. And Google did the same thing. They panicked. They called something called a code red. Basically, canceled every major project that they already had in flight and pivoted the company. Essentially, if it had something to do with AI, they got to keep doing it. If it didn't have anything to do with AI, the project was scrubbed. Uh, and since then, they've introduced the Bard chatbot. They've introduced the Gemini large language model. Um, they've uh, articulated their roadmap for what they call search generative experience, or SGE, which is basically an AI-powered Google search, which when, when you sort of realize search is the very pillar of Google, it is its entire business uh, that, you know, every service that Google uh, provides and generates revenue from, from ultimately sort of flows back to search. 
uh, for that to be AI powered is just an absolute massive generational change for Google. So, um, you know, I, I think this was the year that we got serious about it. Most of us got to touch it for the first time. It left the lab uh, and we started to realize the world is changing and we better change along with it because otherwise we get left behind. I, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, friends uh, about AI and, you know, things like chat GPT, and I'm, I'm just trying to impress upon them, like how quickly this is going to change society. You and I have been covering technology for a long time. I don't want to out you as far as being an old guy, Carmi, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're, you know, a couple of the older, you know, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen anything explode this fast when it comes to technology? Because typically it takes like five to 10 years for new technologies to become mainstream. And I'm going to go more on the 10 year cycle, but this seems to have like hit like within a year. Yeah. Uh, mega trends do not uh, move this quickly ever. Uh, and they certainly haven't moved this quickly in my experience uh, throughout my career. Uh, I've always tended to look at tech evolution, kind of major generations in technology as generational or decadal uh, shifts. Uh, but AI kind of took all of that and threw it out the window. Uh, the the speed, the scope, the pace of this change is something we haven't seen before. And and I keep reminding myself, we haven't seen anything yet. In other words, that, that steepness, that curve, uh, is only going to become more extreme over the next few years as that pace of change continues to accelerate because of the very nature of how AI works, that it trains itself to get better over time. Uh, it can advance much more quickly than more conventional technologies might have in the past. And so we better get ready uh, for a significantly accelerated pace, not just in the tech space, but uh, all of the sectors throughout the economy that will be touched by this in the coming years. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a lot of fear uh, over who gets left behind uh, and, and you know, how many jobs are going to be lost in the process. And these conversations, they're literally just starting as the technology continues to race ahead. So uh, we better buckle up because I think we got a really good sense in 2023 of just how wild this ride is going to be. And we are just getting started. Well, you spoke of uh, Google and Code Red, like they're dropping everything and just, you know, all in on AI. Facebook is all in on AI, you know, Amazon uh, as well. How fortunate, or I guess just smart, is Satya Nadella, uh, the CEO of Microsoft, for betting big on open AI? I think he's a genius. Um, and the reason being is, is he, uh, unlike a lot, you know, if, if you look at his predecessor, Steve Ballmer, who took over from Bill Gates as CEO, Steve Ballmer really represented the old Microsoft, which was, it was an office and a Windows shop, and it was a software company. And uh, he was the wrong guy for the future, where Satya Nadella understood that Microsoft was and is and always will be a platform company. Uh, and those platforms need to move with the economy. And Satya Nadella kind of understands that it, you know, how you define your company isn't based on the products that it sells. It's based on the solutions that it provides uh, and the relationships that it builds with its stakeholders. And Satya Nadella has always been uh, excellent at building those relationships. And uh, so he was brilliant initially, even before AI, pivoting the company away from traditional Windows and Office and products and you know, traditional software boxes uh, towards services like Azure and cloud services. Uh, and then along comes AI and his very early bet in open AI and that relationship that he built with them uh, turned into probably one of the most uh, uh, significant strategic partnerships in technology in a generation. 
Uh, so yeah, this 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 guy's going to be written about very well in his Wikipedia entry for years to come, and for good reason. Do you think they're going to give Google a run for their money? I think they will. Uh, and I, I mean, I find it ironic because it was Google that gave Microsoft a run for its money when it first came along and essentially leapfrogged Microsoft's software legacy with web services. Uh, but I think uh, yeah, it's this is going to be one of those rare instances where an old dinosaur uh, learns new tricks and reinvents itself not just once, but multiple times. Uh, and I think that's good for the industry. It shows that innovation uh, can still happen within a legacy organization, um, that just because you succeeded once in one generation doesn't mean that you will necessarily get leapfrogged by some startup in a, in a garage somewhere, which is what Google was to Microsoft in the late 90s. Uh, but you know, I think that's, that's important. It sends a, a message to large companies like Amazon uh, and Meta uh, that uh, you need to integrate that kind of agility into your organizational structure and culture as well. Um, because left left to their own devices, Meta and Amazon uh, will need to pivot at some point as well. And I don't see a whole lot of evidence that they're able to do so, at least not at the level that Microsoft has pulled off over the last year. Let's look at uh, quickly some of the drama. Sam Altman is uh, the CEO over at OpenAI. And uh, just in the past month, a huge amount of... Uh, behind-the-scenes drama. Basically, the board, which was made up more of academics because OpenAI started basically as a, uh, a non-for-profit. They did form a, a profit side to the company to, to raise money because that's how you raise billions of, of dollars. That's why Microsoft has uh, in, invested. Uh, but it, you know, that particular board, uh, I guess, was concerned, scared perhaps of how fast the progress was happening without really any kind of thought as to the ramifications. Uh, you know, this is kind of speculation, uh, but they did oust him. They fired Sam Altman. And within a week there, huge amounts of drama. You know, Microsoft got involved. They offered him a position and his team members, you know, positions at Microsoft, which essentially looked like the entire company. Uh, but at the end, uh, I guess someone caved somewhere and they brought him back and essentially have formed an entire new board. Uh, I've, I haven't really seen anything like that in a long time. Oh, this was an unprecedented uh, drama in tech. I've never seen anything like that in my entire career. It was, uh, you know, at the same time, it was, it was incredibly entertaining to watch, but I think it was also informative of just how much is at stake with AI, with AI um, and how this isn't just a technology. It is potentially the future of humanity. And I think the board uh, was concerned. They had heard uh, news of a potential breakthrough uh, in what what's known as artificial general intelligence, basically where AI becomes as smart as a human, uh, and they were worried that they didn't have the protections in place and they're moving too quickly, and that Mr. Uh, Altman was not being as upfront with it, not being as what they said transparent um, with him uh, about where they're at in terms of develop developing the technology. So I think it was a you know, I think it was a healthy debate, uh, and and sometimes good comes from chaos in tech, and I think this is a perfect example of that. Huge controversy gets everyone to sort of look into their heart and ask themselves, what are we here for? Uh, are we here for profit? Are we here for the betterment of humanity? Can we have both? Uh, and now that Mr. Altman is back, I think it's pretty clear that the you know those who are the accelerationists accelerationists who want to push the technology faster, I think they won this one. Um, and I think that means that those who are, you know, the, the doomsayers who are worried about the future of humanity, uh, I think their job just became a little bit harder because of what happened at ChatGPT. Uh, that profit motive now seems to be what's driving the bus. Uh, and, and I think it's something we need to keep an eye on as we move into 2024 
uh, those fears about AI didn't go anywhere. Uh, they're still out there. Uh, and with ChatGPT now sort of the, you know, the the leading, the eminent technology and open AI pedal to the metal on developing next generation technologies to power it, uh, I really do think that debate over uh, AI safety and the need to balance safety and profitability will intensify as we head into 2024 and for good reason. We're going to have to take a break. Uh, when we come back, still uh, a lot of tech and review that we want to cover We uh, will be talking about the death of Twitter within one year and uh, what has spawned out of that. We'll talk about some of the the laws uh, when it comes to streaming and content uh, that the Canadian government has passed here in Canada. And uh, up next, we'll be talking about Apple and its big bets on mixed reality headsets. You're tuned in to Get Connected here in the Chorus Radio Network. We'll be back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Carmi Levy. We're doing a tech Year in review show, some of the top uh, tech headlines that we've covered this past year and kind of where we're at now and maybe where things are going. Up next here, we're going to talk about Apple. They've uh, had uh, another good year. They've uh, released, of course, all sorts of new products, new PCs, or sorry, MacBooks, uh, new phones. They also announced the Apple Vision Pro Mixed Reality Headset, which is uh, kind of the first big new product that they've announced in years and i you know tim cook i guess is uh thinking that this is going to be the future of how we kind of interact with technology and carmy it was announced uh, a few months ago but we're not going to see this until uh 2024 like in in the coming months and even then it's not really aimed at the mainstream i i get the sense it's more developers uh and uh kind of business case uses Oh, yeah. I mean, in the U.S., it'll sell for 3500 U.S. to start with, which means basically a price close to $5,000 when it finally goes on sale in Canada. Um, so this is higher than high end. Um, they will not sell a lot of them, but that's not the point here. It's kind of like the first iPhone. They knew that it was a high end device, but it was really to get it into the hands of developers, of influencers, uh, and you know, had them roll up their sleeves and figure it out and get their networks excited about it and eventually develop the hardware and the software beyond version one uh, and evolve it and refine it based on the kind of feedback that they get back um, and drive it into the mainstream that way uh, after a few generations. And you look where the iPhone is now. Um, it is a mainstream device firmly, even though it is a premium price device, it's still mainstream sells in those numbers. Uh, and the reality for Apple is, is as important as the iPhone is to the company uh, from a revenue perspective, we've reached peak iPhone. Uh, we are, you know, the smartphone market is mature. Uh, Apple is not going to be selling into greenfield markets anymore. They've sold everyone who has uh, an iPhone pretty much, you know, has already bought one and they will be selling replacement iPhones. So you've got to find out what's next. And Tim Cook believes that this this headset is what is next. Uh, and that version one, incredibly expensive version, um, will be followed by uh, smaller ones, faster ones, uh, easier to use ones, and more importantly, cheaper ones. Uh, but it all starts in 2024. Uh, and just based on the hype that they were able to generate from a product that they didn't even allow regular people to touch when they demoed it uh, in June, um, again, we're paying attention to the Vision Pro in the same way that we paid attention to the iPhone when Steve Jobs first talked about it on stage. Uh, and so uh, this will definitely be a technology to watch in 2024, even if we aren't buying it. That is not the point for version one. 
Uh, it's simply getting it out there, seeing what it can do, and then taking all that input and using it to drive those sub subsequent generations. They're taking an in interesting um, tact on it. You know, we we've seen virtual reality headsets, uh, you know, Facebook's Meta uh, Quest 2 and, you know, their various incarnations have been more kind of virtual reality than augmented reality. And augmented reality simply means that um, you're still uh, in in view of the outside world and, you know, imagery is being kind of overlaid and information is being overlaid, uh, you know, in whatever you're, you're looking through. So this is going to do kind of virtual reality and augmented uh, reality. Uh, how many years out do you think before this kind of becomes more mainstream and what price point do you think they have to hit for, you know, regular folks and, and mass I, adoption? I would say they've got about a five-year window because I, I think the, the, the size of the mountain in terms of technology is bigger with a headset than it ever was with a smartphone. So I think it'll take that much time for us to, for, for society, the culture uh, of how we use technology to transition from a slab of glass to something we wear on our head and for us to find it culturally acceptable to walk down the street with these things on our head uh, and interact with people. But I think within five years, uh, the technology will evolve to the point that uh, it will be as mainstream uh, then as a smartphone is today that we don't even think about it. We won't bat our eyes. But I can guarantee you, if you see someone with a, with a Vision Pro out in public next year, uh, we will stop what we're doing and we will remember where we were when that first happened, as we did with the first iPhone. So it'll be interesting and it'll be fun to see how Apple drives that process into the mainstream over the next few years. You are tuned in to Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Carmi Levy. Today, we're doing a year in review as far as tech stories go. Uh, you know, obviously, AI was uh, the big story that we've chatted about. Uh, Apple is really punching uh, towards the future with mixed reality headsets. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to be talking about the death of Twitter and the birth of X and also what the Canadian government's doing to try to uh, bring uh, digital streaming content and, and news into the uh, the new age. You are listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here, and I've got uh, my good friend Carmi Levy out of Toronto with me today. We're doing a tech year in review here on the program. Some of our favorite and uh, most salient uh, tech stories that we've been following this uh, past year. This next one, <laughs> it's it's been an interesting ride, and I'm talking about Twitter. Uh, Twitter was bought by Elon Musk for $44 billion, $44 billion. And in the space of a year, some dramatic changes have, uh, have happened, uh, Carmi, and I, I don't even know where to begin. So not only did Elon Musk purchase the company, he downsized it dramatically, laying off thousands, tens of thousands of, uh, people. And, uh, we also saw the birth of threads from, uh, the Facebook meta people, which we'll, we'll kind of get into. So starting off with the, uh, the dumpster fire formerly known as Twitter, what, what happened? Do you think that Elon kind of maybe made a few missteps or was this part of his plan all along? I, I don't think it was his plan for it to be this chaotic, uh, but I think compared to his earlier companies, when you look at, for example, SpaceX and Tesla, um, where he didn't seem to be at that unhinged there. And, you know, certainly when you're uh, designing and building electric vehicles that regular people will use on public streets, and when you're sending humans uh, into space and you want to return them safely, I think the, the accountability is much higher. Um, I think at those other companies, I think Mr. Musk had a lot of other adults in the room uh, who were able to temper his excesses. Whereas when I think he went to Twitter, 
Um, I think he saw himself as the adult in the room. He didn't have a team around him. And from what we've seen from reporting about Twitter compared to uh, his other companies, um, where he's surrounded by a phalanx of assistants uh, who kind of know him and sort of make up for his for his behaviors, uh, that isn't the case at Twitter. And essentially, if you work at Twitter, you are subject to Elon Musk directly uh, for better or largely for worse. Um, so I think Twitter and Twitter, of course, is a very different animal than uh, an electric vehicle or a rocket company. Um, and I think it shows. Uh, Mr. Musk clearly had no idea what he was getting into. Um, I think he thought that he could essentially do as he wishes, didn't really understand the culture uh, of this company. I think he's paying a very heavy price and he's essentially uh, deconstructed the company as a jury. I mean, he admitted to it being worth about $19 billion, less than half what he paid. I think that number is a lot smaller now. Um, and he will likely never be able to get that value back because the, the Twitter as we know it, uh, the audience that valued it, the global audience that felt that it was something special in the world of, of social media uh, is gone. Uh, and the advertisers who largely paid the freight uh, all along uh, are also gone for the most part. And unlike uh, earlier waves of advertiser defections, they are not coming back. Uh, in this world, you cannot afford to have your content appear, your ads appear next to um, content that is uh, posted by right-wing extremists. You cannot afford uh, to not have any controls around misinformation, hate speech, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, you name it. Um, the place was known for being toxic before Mr. Musk took, took over. Now it is essentially a technological hellscape and it's not going to get any better. So the dumpster fire that burned throughout 2023, expect that to intensify into 2024, failing some other significant change at the top of the company. If Mr. Musk decides to sell out, and someone else decides to pick up the remains, maybe things will change. But as long as Mr. Musk is in the corner office, uh, this is probably going to be the most entertaining and tragically entertaining story in tech going. This is a huge distraction, though, don't you think, for Elon? I mean, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies now. He's making robots, solar panels. He's got a rocket company. He's got an electric car company. At what point do you think he's just going to call it a day and sell what remains? Um, I, I think he enjoys the notoriety. Uh, and I think he's he's actually, I think that's what fuels him. Uh, so I don't see that happening anytime soon, much as I think a lot of us wish it would, um, because I, I think it's a distraction for the industry, uh, especially as we go into an election year in the U.S. where misinformation is top of mind and the role that social media platforms must play in reigning in misinformation, particularly as our artificial intelligence arrives on the scene as deep fakes uh, spread more, more broadly across social media platforms. These platforms need to be more responsible, and Mr. Musk simply doesn't care, but he loves the attention that he gets when he is criticized. And so I don't see that changing anytime soon. I don't really think he's as focused on the finances. I mean, we see those numbers and we blanch, but uh, we're not billionaires. We're not the world's richest people. He is. Uh, and so I think he operates by a different set of rules. Uh, and in the absence of legislation that would force him to behave properly, he behaves as Elon Musk has always behaved, which is irresponsibly. Um, there are changes coming along the way. There's the Digital Standards Act in, in the European Union, where they are now forcing uh, X to you know play by the rules and they will hold the company accountable. They are investigating the company for claims of uh, not doing enough to rein in misinformation. Uh, they might yet make an example out of X and Mr. Musk early on in the existence of this legislation, but uh, that will play out in 2024. And it'll be interesting to see if this new generation of legislation can force accountability, not only for X, uh, but for other companies as well that have not done enough 
uh, to clean up their act digitally. So uh, it'll be a lot of fun to watch. And I'm kind of hoping 2024 is the year that we begin to turn the tide. So in 2024, we also saw the birth of, uh, I guess, the first real competitor to Twitter slash X. Uh, and that was Meta's Threads, which came out with a bang, uh, you know, literally adding millions of uh, of users and uh, a lot of buzz, a lot of hype. But where are they now? Like, I never hear about Threads anymore. Are you on it? Are you using it? I'm on it. Uh, I was on it fairly early. Um, and I've noticed a change over the last couple of months. And generally speaking, anytime Elon Musk would step in something, uh, that we can't mention on the air, uh, that would drive a surge in interest in the alternatives. And so we've seen uh, Mastodon, Post, Hive, Blue Sky, they've all kind of had their moment uh, in the sun. Uh, but it's really Threads, which is, of course, backed by Meta, created by Meta, uh, initially very closely tied to Instagram. It allowed you to leverage your Instagram network to build your presence. So it got off to a, a fast start, but then it was missing so many features, a lot of people just didn't engage with it. That has changed as people look to an alternative that is still perceived as somewhat pure, not tainted uh, by the establishment, um, that they have gravitated toward threads. And certainly I can speak anecdotally from my own experience, my engagement numbers are way higher for the size of network that I have on threads than they ever were on Twitter. Um, so there's definitely something happening there uh, and of course, Meta has continued to go pedal to the metal on filling in a lot of the services, the features that were lacking when it first launched. So, you know, then, now there's a form of, we won't call them hashtags, they're uh, topic tags. Uh, there's a web interface. You can search, you can edit, you can do all sorts of different things. Uh, but most importantly, Threads has not been tainted by the, you know, tweaked up algorithm, tons of ads, tons of sponsored content, tons of suggested content. Uh, that we see on both Facebook and Instagram. So far, it's it's still a, a very utopian kind of environment that a lot of people are flocking to. So we are seeing some mom momentum for threads as the year ends. It'll be interesting to see if Meta can maintain that uh, or if they ruin it, like they ruined everything else that they own um, by turning them into an advertising-driven hellscape. Does threads have the danger of turning into the next Google Plus, uh, Google's attempt at uh, a social media platform? Uh, I I don't think so. I thought about that, and I you know of course I you know like everyone bought into all of those Google attempts to be a player in social media, only be, to be disappointed days later when I realized they they, they weren't. Um, but I think the difference between Google and Meta here is that Google never really had a social media culture. Google was and is a web services company. Uh, didn't really understand what made social media tick. It takes a very different set of competencies to succeed in social media. Uh, and being a web player doesn't necessarily give you those competencies. Whereas Meta, that's what they've done since the start. Uh, it was always social when you know Mark Zuckerberg started it in his Harvard dorm room. Uh, that was the intent. That was the culture. That was the architecture. Um, so I think Threads benefits to a certain extent from that. Um, and it also benefits with a, a corporate perspective where they recognize they've made some mistakes with their earlier properties and they are going to go slow on this one. In other words, they're not going to try to aggressively monetize it this early in its history. That will come, though. So what may end up happening is, is a, a whole lot of ex-Twitter and ex-users will switch over to threads, and then a couple of years from now, they will find that it becomes a lot more like Facebook and Instagram than they, they had ever realized, and they'll go looking for something else. I think at some point, though, we're all just, just going to look at social media and go, 
if this is what it all is, maybe we need to go post-social. In other words, what comes after social media? Because the model that we were originally sold isn't quite working as we head into the middle of the 2020s. If you had a crystal ball, what do you see for uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, in, in 2024? More of the same? Oh, uh, I, I, more of the same, uh, but I think that, that and I, I won't call it a roller coaster because a roller coaster implies that at some point you have to go uphill, and I just don't see that happening with, with X at this point. It's all downhill and an acceleration at that. Um, but I think at some point the the monetary situation starts to become uh, worrisome to Mr. Musk uh, that, you know, even though he's the world's richest person, he's on all that liquid. Uh, and so he can't just reach into his pocket and write a check. He had to really you know, assemble a Jenga tower of financing just to get this deal going. And he's got he's got a lot of people uh, and a lot of venture capitalists to answer to. Uh, and at some point, those loans and those financial arrangements are going to come due. Um, and he's not going to have an answer for it. So I think at some point he'll have to pay the piper and he will either uh, change his tune and restructure or he'll simply accept a buyout from someone and walk away. But uh, right now, I think he's driven by ego. And I think at least for the next year, the Elon Musk show at X will continue. We are going to have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to uh, talk about some of the Laws that have recently been passed, Bill C-18 and Bill C-11, both uh, laws here now in Canada. One's the Online News Act, which uh, Facebook and uh, Google were not happy about, and the Online Streaming Act, uh, which Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Disney are not happy about. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. Got Carmi Levy out of Toronto with me. We're doing a tech and review, our favorite uh, stories of this past year, and it's been quite eventful. Uh, moving on now to some legislation that's been passed here in Canada. Uh, I'm talking uh, specifically about the Online News Act and also the Online Streaming Act as well. And uh, Carmen, let's start with the Online News Act. And this is uh, kind of interesting. The Canadian government, I guess, was trying to force, or not trying, or still trying, uh, to force the, the big tech companies. And that would probably be like Google and Facebook to pay, uh, you know, the publications here in Canada more money for the content uh, that they're wrapping a lot of their services uh, around. It looks like uh, Google has uh, come in from the cold and actually is working out a deal. Uh, but, you know, for a, a while now, Facebook has uh, not had any news content on their site. I, <laughs> I've noticed it quite a bit because, it, you know, if it wasn't crap before, it's even more crap that I'm being exposed to on my news feed because there's no news, real news. You know, Facebook definitely decided to take its uh, its ball and go home as part of the negotiations around coming up with a framework to enact the law. The law, of course, was uh, it received royal assent in June. And since then, the CRTC has been engaged in a consultation process to figure out what are the rules of engagement? How will this be enacted, enforced? What will it look like on the ground when it finally goes into effect at the end of the year? Um, and so uh, Meta decided fairly early on that they just didn't like the terms of the law and they didn't see any potential for negotiating any acceptable terms. And they said, OK, we're just going to, you know, we don't want to pay to carry uh, links on our platforms. We don't want to be part of this deal. We don't want to negotiate deals with media platforms. We're just going to remove it from our from our platform so we won't have to comply with the law. That will be the way that we comply. Uh, whereas Google said, look, you know, we also have our concerns, but we'll continue to negotiate. They did continue to negotiate, ultimately agreed to pay $100 million a year 
uh, into a fund that will then be divided up between broadcasters, written media outlets, digital publishers, um, and things like that. And so uh, it marks the first time that a digital platform has ever paid uh, anything to conventional media outlets for carrying their content. Um, which is a huge milestone. It means that Canada finally has some form of legislation, imperfect as it may be, uh, that it recognizes the digital reality that we face in 2023 and beyond. So, uh, you know, we've, we've had a Broadcasting Act in place, but the last time it was updated was 1991. Uh, and large parts of the code date back even further to 1968, that long before any of these technologies were a thing. So it's important that we finally get to that point, but at the same time, Meta shot itself in the foot by deciding not to play ball. Um, and ultimately, they gave us one less reason to use their platform. So I no longer surface and millions of Canadians no longer surface or discover media content on Facebook or Instagram. They go somewhere else, which means they spend less time on the platform, which means the company has less opportunity to sell ads and generate revenue off of our use. So good on you, Meta. You might have won that battle but you'll ultimately lose the war because you give us one less reason to use your version of social media. But don't you think people will come back once they put news back on? Uh, I think if they do, maybe, but I think we may have had, uh, I've now had what, they stopped doing this in the summer. Uh, and so I, I know I'm not the only one, but I know many of us have had a few months to kind of get used to it. And we realized that, you know, it, it isn't really that efficient or effective a, a place to get our, our news content. In other words, Social media is not the greatest place to figure out what's going on in your community. And so a lot of us have downloaded the apps from our local and favorite media platforms. A lot of us have uh, reconnected with the websites locally. I know I have. I've set up all my bookmarks on all my devices. I make sure that they work and I do my rounds and I don't, I don't, I cut out the middleman. Social media is no longer the intermediary between me and the news that I want from the media outlets that matter most to me. Uh, and I think at some point we'll look at that sort of say, hey, you know, we thought social media was going to be that conduit, that channel. But in fact, it wasn't that great a channel in the in, in the first place. And we don't want to go back to it. So maybe Meta's going to decide to opt back in. Uh, but I, I don't think most Canadians care anymore. Uh, I think we've moved on. Uh, we're not going back. Let's move on to the Online Streaming Act. Uh, now the Canadian government's basically going after the big streamers, the Netflixes, the Amazon Prime videos, to... Uh... I guess, buck up some money for Canadian content. As you can imagine, these corporations are not excited about having to pay extra money, which of course will you know eventually be passed on to us uh, anyway. But if you look at the landscape now, as far as uh, Canadian TV shows and, and movies, a lot of them are funded through broadcaster contributions uh, uh, that you know, independent producers in Canada can use to, to make this content. And as TV starts uh, going down and online streaming, which is kind of the predominant way that most people get content now, there's kind of a, a void in uh, the money that uh, is, is being raised for this. Exactly. You know, Canada's cultural industries, we, you know, we, we, we film a lot of things here. We have writers, we have producers, directors, we have studios across the country. Uh, we are known as a, a center of production excellence. Um, we're relative because of the, the, the state of the Canadian dollar, we're a fairly inexpensive place to produce things. And so Netflix already, they say they spend about a billion dollars a year in Canada and, on productions and they, they employ 800 people, which is great, but no law requires them to do that. And if the economy shifts, they're out of here in a heartbeat. Um, whereas, you know, up, you're right up until now, we have had legislation that required traditional broadcasters, uh, to 
fund, you know, provide funding back in to sustain the industry um, and and benefit the industry that has benefited them. Whereas digital players have not had that requirement. So if Netflix didn't want to pay for Canadian production, it didn't have to. Uh, and I think we can make the argument to, to a large extent, uh, big tech companies, largely American streamers, uh, have benefited significantly from the Canadian market, but haven't paid back in their fair share. Um, and so as a result, there are fewer jobs in uh, Canada's cultural industries because of the shift to streaming. And that needs to end. You, you can't have this sort of barrier between traditional broadcasters and producers, as well as streaming companies. Uh, and same thing with Spotify is included in this as well. Spotify is an audio streamer, and they are under no legislative requirement to give back to Canada, let alone the fact that we are you know, paying huge amounts of subscriptions to this company, money that then just disappears outside of our borders. So this levels the playing field somewhat, and it gives Canada a fighting chance to ensure that we still have jobs north of the border. Uh, and and we also still have an opportunity to, to tell those Canadian stories. In past uh, generations, we've had Canadian content requirements, which I know were very controversial at the time, but they, they led to great Canadian bands, great Canadian shows, great Canadian movies, great Canadian actors. Uh, and if you have those laws in place, it plants the seeds for great Canadian productions to happen and for kids to grow up saying, I want to work in this industry and I don't want to have to go to Hollywood. I think that's important. And Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act, sets the stage for that to happen. And even if Netflix is complaining that they're going to have to pay more and it might cost you and me more, I think we need to think about as consumers what it costs us when we don't have a Canadian industry to speak of. And maybe it might be worth a couple bucks more a month on our subscription rates to ensure that Canada continues to play a role in that globally, because otherwise we'll have nothing. Cheaper, uh, but you know, ultimately our economy will suffer. So which one do we want? I think the important thing to realize here too is that the government's looking to get money you know, into Canadian content. Yes, Netflix spends over a billion dollars a year in production, but that is pure service work. That is money going into uh, you know, Netflix shows that are American, Netflix shows that mm -hmm. are um, American movies uh, as well. And you know what? They will still make those movies and TV shows up here because not only do they get that great exchange rate, they also get, uh, you know, Canadian tax credits. Uh, so that's additional money. So it makes it dramatically cheaper for them to uh, actually shoot here in Canada. That's all the time we have left. I want to thank Carmi Levy for joining me here in our Tech in Review for 2023. Excited to... Uh, catch up with the audience uh, next year in 2024. I want to thank you all for continuing to listen and making us the number one tech radio program in Canada. We'll see you again next time.